And here's what I want to ask you. What is holding you back? What is the thing that's holding you back from going after your dreams and from finding meaningful work you love? Aren't you ready to wake up to the possibilities that are in your life and go after the things you've dreamt of? It's time for you to feel alive again, lit up, and for you to know that you're deserving and you are worthy for the future that's waiting for you. I want you to feel fulfilled and find abundance in your life. I think it's time and I'm ready to help you get started. Now I'm your host, Kristen, of Building a Life You Love. And each week on the show, we're going to help you figure out how you do go after your dreams and find work you love. Here we go. Let's get started. On today's episode, I can't wait to talk about money because here is the thing. While money makes the world go round, we have to understand how to use it, how to be able to grow it and how to make it work for us. And I'm so excited because on today's episode, we talked to a financial educator is amazing. She literally helps us be empowered to roll our money and make our finances grow for us. So let's get started and figure out how we make that money grow. Hi, today I'd like to welcome to the show, Anna Orenstein Cardona. Uh, Welcome, Anna. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks. Anna is a certified financial educator and she was born and raised in Puerto Rico, where she grew up in a multicultural home, where although money was tight, love was plentiful. From a young age, she was constantly coming up with inventive ways to raise and save money. Anna received her Bachelor of Science degree in Brain and Cognitive Sciences from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. And for the past 21 years, she has worked on the trading floors of various large financial institutions, both on Wall Street and in the city of London. A fun fact is that in 2016, she was asked to advise Colin Firth in the trading scene from Born Equal, a television film directed by Dominic Savage for the BBC. Aside from her day job, Anna is an NFEC certified financial educator and coach who is passionate about closing the gap in financial literacy. She recently founded Wear Your Money Crown to empower others with the knowledge and tools to make smarter financial decisions, align their financial behaviors with personal goals, and take actionable steps to rule their finances. Anna is also a board member of the MIT Club for Great Britain and is actively involved in various charities. Okay, Anna, I would love it if you could share with our listeners a little bit more about your background and your backstory, because it is so interesting, all the many things you've done. Well, thank you so much, Kristen. So my background, well, you know, it's funny how you start on a journey in life, and then you find a fork in the road, and you travel the road less expected. So my background is I was born and raised in Puerto Rico, as you mentioned, and I grew up wanting to be actually a veterinarian. I'm a huge animal lover and advocate. And I started to think about, okay, well, I need to get really good grades to go to vet school because there's none in Puerto Rico. you got to go to the U.S. And so through that journey, even when I was young um, in high school, I was very lucky. I got some special scholarships to go to the U.S. and study at CSU, which is Colorado State University. And I realized I'm not apt to be in a veterinarian because I'm too emotional. <laughs> so I said, I know what, I'm going to look after humans instead. <laughs> and that's um, what took me to MIT. I started with uh, I started with a degree in biology and I ended up changing to brain and cognitive sciences with a minor in neuroscience because I'm just so fascinated about the brain. And then I did my pre-med requirements for that. But then I realized to go to medical school, you need a lot of money. 
And, you know, there's two roads about it. Either you come from a family who can help you to do that, or you have to incur a lot of student loans. And I already had student loans for my undergraduate degree. And so my 20-year-old self said, I know what, I'm going to go work in New York for a year or two and then save some money and go to medical school. And I literally applied to one job, which is so crazy thinking about, you know, from an adult, you go, what? You should have applied to 10 or 20. (laughs) I applied to one job on the trading floor of this large, it, it was like a boutique, but also large financial company called DLJ, Donaldson, Luskin and Generous. And it was to work on the trading floor. And I remember I didn't own a suit. I had to go on my credit card, get my first suit, board the bus from Boston to New York City. And there I was at DLJ. Let me think. I was 21 by that time. And, you know, I go into a room full of old men reading the Wall Street Journal and and whatever. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm never going to get this job. And in the interview, literally, when they saw my background, all they wanted to know was about my research. And I was doing research in Alzheimer's at the time. And so... They hired me, which is so crazy. And that's where I started my career. (laughs) Yes. So then I was there for 18 months. And what happened is they merged. They were actually um, bought, although they said it was a merger, by a very large European bank called Credit Suisse. And so they gave me the opportunity as a young person who is bilingual to come to London and cover Spanish investors in fixed income. You know, again, I was by then 22 and I was like, absolutely. You know, when is someone going to pay me to go to another country? (laughs) Yeah. But you know, what's really interesting, Kristen, now thinking about it is the following. I haven't thought about this in a long time, actually, just talking about the story now made me think about it. When I first was offered the job, it was my salary transferred to pounds, right? Which is the UK currency, sterling. And I, and nothing else. And I remember sitting there and doing my calculations. I said, I will go into debt if I accept that job on those terms. And I, you know, literally filled myself with confidence. And the next day I went to, to bless him, Tom Guba, who was the head of all fixed income. And I said, Tom, I want to take this job, but I can't afford it. And I haven't thought about that in a long time. And that was the first real time where I negotiated as a young woman to say, I need this kind of certain salary and I need my housing covered because the housing in the UK is very expensive, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and and then he's like, all right, I'll get that started. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> if you ask, sometimes it's all about asking, isn't it? And so yeah. I asked and they said, yes. And that's how I came to London. So that was in 2000, um, just after, just before the tech bubble exploded. So I came to London and that's what got me into the world of, let's say, the European side of investments, because I had been doing for 18 months the U.S. side. And to be honest, the U.S. being the largest economy in the world leads investments globally. But it was so interesting getting the European perspective and also working with clients from another country. And so from there on, so I started covering Spanish investors and I traded with them for their funds. I always covered very large investors, asset managers, pension funds, banks. And then I moved on to cover UK investors. And that's what I've been doing all this time. And so I would say a good it probably started around more like seven years ago, something in me. I always felt like the misfit on the trading floor. I felt like, you know, I do love numbers and I do love the environment, you know, phones ringing, trading, shouting. I love that kind of energy. But at the same time, I'm a very creative soul in my heart. I love writing. And 
so I thought to myself, oh, I'm going to go to night school and study creative writing. So I started that. I went to Faber is a very well-known publisher in the UK, and they have a school called Faber Academy. And so I went into the, the night school to study creative writing. And I started with adult writing. And then actually something in me just started to call me for children's writing. My, my niece had just been born and I was like so in love with her and I was like, okay, I want to do something for her as a gift. And so that is something that fingers crossed, hopefully come, something is coming up perhaps on it. But through that process, I started to think, well, how can I combine my current skill set, which is financial knowledge with something about kids? And I thought, well, kids should be learning about money how to manage their money, become interested in a, you know, make it fun for kids. And so through doing my research for that book proposal, I found out that there is a whole sector of financial coaching and financial education that, to be honest, just never crossed my mind. And, you know, I always thought it was either you are a financial advisor in a regulated role or you are what I was doing, which is being on the trading side and sales side. So sales and trading um, of a entity, or you would be a wealth manager, you know, like the Black Rocks, the Fidelities, the Vanguards, you know, I just never knew there was an in-between. And so I was like, you know, yeah. mind blown, this, is, this exists. So I'm like, okay, okay, what do I need to do to be one? <laughs> and actually, you don't need to do anything, which is kind of crazy, because it means anyone can call themselves a financial coach because it's not regulated, but me being who I am, very studious, I was like, no, I want to get my certification. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, there's two reasons for that. One of it is it just boosts your own confidence and self-belief of knowing, hey, I can do this, you know. And, and secondly, I think it's important to show some credentials, you know, even though I have all these years, you know, of experience. So that's the NFEC. They're the National Financial Educators Council. It's a global organization, but focused in, based in the U.S. And through there, I got certified in 2020, and that's when I launched Wear Your Money Crown. And the meaning behind that is, you know, a crown symbolizes victory, royalty, and triumph. And that's literally my goal for every single human being, that they can wear their own money crowns and rule their finances. So that's that's the story. I love it. There is so much there we can definitely talk about today. So I'm looking forward <laughs> to that. The first thing that came to mind that I want to ask you is, I think when we talked, you know, before the recording, you mentioned that most of your clients in the financial Mm -hmm. education and coaching space are women. Is that right? I would say 80%. Yeah. Eight out of 10. Yeah. So tell me, is there a certain money mindset that's going on there that when you start working with people, you know, the normal pitfalls or things where where you're seeing that people can know about and work on so they're aware of it themselves? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, that's a great question. So I would say, okay, one of the main things it is that because financial literacy is not taught in school, and it's not taught really in our adulthood, is it right? Mm -hmm. You have to make a conscious effort. And I must say things are starting to change in the educational system, but just not fast enough. Mm -hmm. And I feel that, you know, when people, especially women, I feel that there's a lot of masculinity around money and a lot of masculinity around trading, investing. And even, for instance, when I prepare my presentations for clients and I love using quotes, it's so hard to find quotes about money from famous women. It's all Warren Buffet and and men like him, who who I admire. But, you know, I find maybe a a Barbara Corcoran and a Susie Mm -hmm. Orman, but Aside from that, it's very difficult. And I'm like, you know, we got to change the narrative because actually 
even research studies have shown that women are better risk takers than men. But that's a super fascinating topic um, aside from that. But the point is, I would say most of my clients, when I start working with them, is that they have just been money avoidant, not purposefully. It's been accidentally, right? When we sit down to really work about, for example, their net worth, knowing what they actually have, diving into their pensions, many times I find out very commonly, women make money, they make good money, and they just put it into a savings account. They don't allow their money to grow. A lot of the people that I've come across that are self-employed have not been saving for their retirement. That's a big one that I change with them because it's so important Mm -hmm. to change it. And the younger, the better, right? Another point would be about the mindset, I suppose. It's just, again, about thinking because the lingo can be so masculine sometimes and unknown. It's like the mind shuts down. And so it's about saying, no, you are a powerful woman who can understand a lot of things. This is easy. You just need someone to explain what it means. So I think those are the most common factors. And I would say the last would be kind of about money avoidance is that this is very common, right? When people get married, and many times it's the woman who ends up leaving a very successful career to become a a mother and look after the children. And sometimes there's a cost benefit to that because in certain countries, like in the UK, for instance, childcare is extraordinarily expensive. And so sometimes it's inefficient for one of the parents to actually work and pay a, a child carer. But on the other hand, I understand a lot of women want to stay home with their children, but then the gap starts to grow, you know, that the wage gap that we know about, but we have because of that career gap as well, then you start to have pension gap, wealth gap, investment gap, and then, you know, it just snowballs. And so that's something that I work with my clients on in realizing we got to close that gap. That's like in the intro, you said that that's like that gap, what I'm referring to. It's that financial education gap, wealth gap pension gap and knowledge gap. Yeah, no, that's so good. And I think it is so important. Often one person, if you are in a long-term relationship, maybe married, one mm-hmm. person tends to handle a lot more of the finances than the other person. Is there a recommendation from that perspective, whether, you know, man or woman, but is there anything they should be doing, small steps they can take to get more involved in their their finances and the financial picture so that they don't find themselves, you know, not really knowing much about what's going on? Yes. You know what? I think that's a great, great point. So I think sitting down together and doing a a real talk, meaning, okay, let's know where all our assets are. Let's know what our liabilities are, because guys, this is massive. Like so many times I have had situations where, you know, one of my clients does not understand that their partner had taken out a loan on something. There's certain situations that can be kind of scary. And then the spouse has issues that they did not know they had. So it's about being, um, you know, opening the books, let's say, and sitting down and doing a family plan. And this is like once a month. It's to understand, okay, first of all, do we have a household budget? And in the budget, you'll know where your income is coming, your expenses, right? Then in that, in there as well as you're putting money towards savings, you know where all your accounts are. This is also about knowing things like, do we have life insurance? Because this is another really important point, Kristen, that I speak with people. So a lot of times I'll speak with women who are in a marriage and they say, oh, my spouse who's working has life insurance. I'm like, okay, and hold on. What, God forbid, if something happened to you, would happen because obviously the emotional strain on the spouse, but also if you have children, you need to have even more income to look after the children, right? And so I really believe in a matrimony or union between couples, whether you are married or living together, you need to protect both sides and think about the good, 
and the bad that could happen. So it's not about thinking about, oh, you know, what if divorce happens? And I'm thinking, what if I lost my spouse? How am I going to deal with things financially? Life insurance, does life insurance cover X, Y, Z, living expenses, school, you know, all the expenses that could come with childcare, et cetera. So that would be another. And the other would be really important about, so each spouse knows or partner knows where things are financially. And also they talk about their future retirement, because even if you are a non-working spouse in the U.S. and in the U.K., they have different lingo, but in essence, the spouse that works can put money tax efficiently into an investment, such as, for example, a spousal IRA in the USA. And a lot of people don't know about that. Yeah, so that's really good advice. So let me ask you, I know that a big part of what you're trying to educate people on and, and you're helping them through, if they're your clients, is how do we become financially resilient? So can you talk, can you walk us through that? What does that look like? What do we need to know? And are there things we do that we should be considering so that we can be prepared, right? As we get older, as we retire, or if, you know, go on more trips or more freedom of time. Sure, sure. So I think of financial resilience kind of in alignment with financial power, right? And it's like, how do we step into that? And I, I define it as having the confidence in our finances that we can be the best version of ourselves. And that means aligning our desires and values with our goals. And, you know, that also entails having the financial means to be able to make decisions that, as you say, could lead us to either say, oh, well, I want to go on this trip to visit my friend in this other country. I want to put money to my retirement fund. I want to do this or that. You know, all that takes wisdom. And so part of the financial resilience is getting educated in financial literacy so that you know what you need to do and not to. And I always say about kind of financial resilience and what money is. Money is literally the tool that lets us say no, you know, no to bad relationships, no to a bad job and no to bad circumstances. And if, you know, again, sadly, if one gets sick to have the ability to say no to that illness, I'm going to get better by going to the best doctors, best nutritionists, et cetera, right? So money allows us to do that and we build our financial resilience. So my key, let's say my top three tips would be on financial resilience is having an emergency fund. That is vital. And what is an emergency fund? This is cash put aside. It is not invested. It is literally sitting in a savings account, sadly now with interest rates globally, you know, it's difficult to get a big return, but that's not the point of your emergency fund. Mm -hmm. The point of the emergency fund is to be your financial cushion. I like to call it your financial parachute. Like if you got to jump out, it's going to save you, right? So I would say an emergency fund. And I, um, you know, a lot of financial educators say three to six months. I think that was pre-COVID. I think now with COVID and seeing the pandemic aftermath, I think you need between nine to 14 months even because Uh you need to think, yeah, I know. And I know it sounds scary, but I'm going to say something positive about that at least in a second. But that is basically the time you think it could get you to get the same income that you're currently having. So let's say if you're in a full-time job, how long if you lost that job would it take you to replace that income, whether it's in that type of job or not? And because obviously we have suffered through the pandemic and we've seen really what's, by the way, sustain the U.S. economy and global economies right now is the, you know, the money that the central banks and countries, governments have given and the stimulus that has been. And that is not going to be long lasting forever. You know, businesses 
are having a lot of difficulties. They've survived thanks to furlough and thanks to a lot of uh, loans and schemes and grants that the governments have given. But that's not long term. And so we really have to think about financial resilience long term. So the emergency fund, though, what I did want to say on a positive note is the following. It's not your living expenses in its today's state. Because if we're going through an emergency, the first thing we do is tighten our belt. So it's going to be your bare bones expenses, right? So you're not going to be going on trips or expensive meals or going out or giving gifts to people. You know, you really have to think, okay, what is for me to have my home, my food, my children's school fees, et cetera, et cetera. And then you prepare that. And I know it sounds scary, but if you start, it's all about starting, right? And by the way, God willing, you'll never have to touch that emergency fund, but it's there and that's such a great cushion to have. So that would be my first step. The second step would be, I think that you need to look at your current financial health, obviously, just like your physical health. Okay, how am I today? You know, instead of doing, let's say, blood tests to know what your health is like, you'll be doing some financial health ratio analysis. And that's something where I do with my clients, one on one, where we do a deep dive into their finances to basically know terms like what is their debt to income ratio? What is a savings ratio? What is housing ratio? There are certain ratios, just like in the medical field, there's certain things to look at like cholesterol and blood pressure. So in finances, we look at certain things like debt, housing, savings, et cetera, to know what your health is. And then we analyze it and say, okay, well, listen, I don't have X, Y, Z. I need to improve that. My ratio is out of whack. You know, I have too much debt. I need to tackle that. Because once you know where you are, you can make a roadmap. You can make a plan. And then the third thing I think for financial resilience, which is super important, is about mindset. And so I know we've talked a little bit about money mindset, but I think it is the most important piece because if you don't fix whatever financial behaviors have have led you to that debt or to a negative situation or to money avoidance, if you don't realize what is causing that behind, Mm -hmm. let's say behind the curtains, you're not going to heal you'll just fall into the same bandwagon. It's like people, let's say on a health, you know, on a diet, you know, if they don't really get to the problems of what what is causing the emotional eating or is it actually due to chemical imbalances in your body that leads you to gain weight unnecessarily until you do that analysis of what's causing you to get into debt or to not be able to save or to not be able to, you know, is it knowledge, is it behavioral actions, etc. And so that is something super important for people to do a deep analysis. And part of my certification, we did studies in behavioral finance, but also from back at MIT, when we were doing brain and cognitive, really, our, our brains are they're super machines, they're powerful, and we need to just feed it this positive data. And sometimes we need to reboot it. And so those limiting money beliefs, we got to hit, you know, just like we reboot our computers sometimes and they start to behave badly. (laughs) We need to reboot our brains. And so that's really important. Yeah, I think that's so good. And I think you're right. I think most of us have limiting money beliefs. But to be honest, I don't know that that conversation happens all the time. I don't know that people even realize that they come from childhood and how they were, you know, their upbringing their past, they bring these limiting money beliefs with them. And of course, if you're in a marriage, then you have two different, you know, maybe conflicting money beliefs coming together. So I think it is something we don't talk about enough. And I think we do need to kind of get to understanding why we spend money a certain way, or we don't spend money. Like you said, we don't want to have money conversations. So I think it's really important. Is there any really easy tip for how do we start diving into that? How do we even understand what our limiting beliefs on money might be? You know, I think that 
one of the ways is to kind of just think about your childhood, right? And kind of what was that first money memory? And some people like to call it your money story. And to just really dive deep, what was the environment I was in? How was money perceived or not perceived? Right. Because one of the biggest things is that just people don't talk about money and especially women. Sadly, you know, a lot of mothers don't talk to their daughters about money Mm -hmm. and we got to change that narrative. And so it's really sitting down and, and kind of putting a link between that and the current behaviors and your current financial health. And when I do that with my clients, I get it kind of emotional because their eyes open up when they realize, oh my God, I get why I'm doing what I'm doing. And then do the steps to fix that. But I was just going to say, you said something super important and it's about relationships. And when you're in a relationship with someone who has different money beliefs, and I've seen this so much, Kristen, and this really is a problem because money is one of the biggest causes of divorce. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I would love to take every young woman and that and say from the beginning, when you start to date someone and you want to marry them, make sure you understand your money mindset. Like, are they a saver? Are they a spender? Are they a gambler? You know, you really need to kind of have an open conversation. Like, do they have debt? Because by the way, when you get married, that's going to become your problem too. So I think that's really important to talk about money. Yeah, you're right. And I do think, I mean, maybe nowadays more than, you know, I've been married almost 22 years, but I don't know if there's more, you know, money programs for couples. Like you said, couples that are about to become a couple are about to enter into marriage, because I do think it's something that, you know, they might talk about religious views and these different things. And what do they want as far as a family or not? But I don't know that we do talk about this money mindset enough. So I think that's a really good, really good thought there. So let me ask you this. What about someone that's considering much like yourself, where you have a, you know, you, you've had this long-term career, but you're stepping into doing these new things. So two questions for you. The first is, how would you recommend people even look at these opportunities they might step into? Did you find that it's because you had the skill set and you were able to pair it with something else? So I'm just curious, like any suggestions for people there? But secondly, do you have recommendations for financially where we should be before they step into something? It could be a side hustle or it could be a full-time position, but something like that. Sure. Okay. So when the first thing I think a great exercise is literally take a pen and paper and make a line in the middle of a sheet. And on the left hand, write down what I'm good at, what you are good at, what are your, you know, your, let's say talents. And on the right hand side, what do I like to do? So for instance, I did that. I love teaching. And I like the markets, the financial markets. And so that's how I was able as well. Then I, you know, through the research I was doing for this children's book, I found out, hey, this exists. So it's really about researching what you're good at and what you, you know, like your talents and what you like to do. Because, right, they're not always the same, right? You could be a great runner and you hate running. (laughs) So you need to find that. And secondly, I'm very passionate about this because uh, I'm preparing a workshop coming up in two weeks about this topic, about people who are launching new businesses and kind of what is the financial foundation that you need for starting a new business? Because many times people don't understand there is an investment. There always is an investment in a new business. It can either be time or it can be money. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, it's both. And so especially when it's money, you need to have that, again, that emergency fund in your personal finances, because many times you end up having to finance your business, especially at the beginning. It's normal. You have incoming costs, you know, email service provider, course platform, website or website developer, blah, blah, blah. You know, you have all these costs. So you need to really sit down and say, can I afford to do this by leaving my day job? Or do I keep my day job? You know, for instance, I've been working behind the scenes for almost two years, building my business, still work in the day job and ready to, God willing, soon be able to launch myself completely into the business as it's growing. But I really considered like, 
you know, I want to make money. And so I want to set it up with the correct foundation, you know, and that takes an investment because it's very difficult to borrow money for a new business. If you don't have a credit score as a business, if you don't have a history of income and profitability, et cetera. So it's, yeah, it's very wise to fix your personal finances, to have the strength and resilience to have a successful business finance, business finances. That's good. And then I, I think also, as you sort of alluded to, you, you know, you do have to have a little, or it's ideal if you have a little money in the bank put aside for starting a business, even if it's an online business, which mm-hmm. yes, can be very affordable. There are initial costs, right? With setting up the business legally. And then also, like you said, just getting an email platform and just the different tools you'll need. So I think that's really good to know, hey, I still need to have this money set aside for this, this new goal or dream of mine. And the other right. thing though I would note is, what I love is that there's so many ways you can test a new concept, whether it's a business idea, a business venture, or just like, hey, I want to create this journal with this art of mine on it. You can really test that without even starting your business. You can just kind of put feelers yep. out there. Hey, this is what I'm thinking of doing. You know, does anyone have interest? So I love that we can kind of start testing the waters before we step into something fully or even do it as uh, you know, a side gig. Super smart. Totally. Yeah. Let me ask you, as you move into doing your own business, like you said, is there any other last bits of advice you'd give to people that are thinking of stepping out on their own? For instance, was for you, was it just the the payoff of getting more time or was it that you could build your brand as far as you want to, and you're not limited with whatever your career income potential is? What, what was it for you that let you do that? You know, for me, it's more at this stage of my life, you know, and I had been doing and have been doing working on trading floors for 21 years. I decided I want to leave a legacy. I want to do good and have purpose. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even though if you really break it down, you go, Oh, well, you know, on the trading floor, we're investing the money on behalf of, let's say, and doing the trades for these asset management firms that feed to the little person. And it's not the same, you know, for me to be able to help individuals financially is a blessing. I love it. I love to see their transformation. Because by the way, right, especially with women, when you transform a woman, or a man, you don't just transform them, you transform the people around them, it helps their children, because they have this knowledge, they can pass on, they can break that cycle of negativity from, you know, let's say their, their past, financial issues. And so I think it's really beautiful. So I think my last advice would be find your purpose, you know, and when I say purpose, it's I do, I really, really believe in and part of the mindset I practice is abundance is to think, you know, this is doable, but no abundance is doable without action. And so you have to, again, be pragmatic about, okay, what are the action steps? So first of all, I have the thoughts where I'm going to align my values with my purpose. And secondly, okay, how am I going to do that? And that's the action plan. And I want every new entrepreneur to have in their action plan, a financial action plan or roadmap, because that will allow them to be more successful, to use their mental bandwidth for growth, instead of trying to think, how am I going to pay for my health insurance or my car lease or my home? That is horrible to have to take that creative bandwidth away from your business to try to take care of your personal needs. And that's why I'm so so passionate of all my clients are pretty much a mixture between entrepreneurs themselves, or have full time jobs that want to leave and start a business. And this is what we're fixing, fixing the personal finances so they can achieve financial wellness and have the cushion to succeed in a business that their heart desires. I love that. And I think that's one thing I'm finding is, you know, as we hit these different life transitions, whether it's that you had children, but now they're, they're older and you have more free time or 
whether it's just that you're hitting a certain age and you're realizing, you know what, I think I'm ready for something new or, or, Hey, I don't feel as fulfilled as I thought I was. I I'm seeking something new. So I love that you're helping people with that. And because so many people are looking for that next thing. And I love that you're helping them make sure they're prepared financially to do that. So I think that's just, that's just amazing. And I love the work you're doing. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Can you tell me, Anna, how can people find you online and connect with you and then learn more about your programs and offerings? Great. Thank you. So I, um, the website is www.whereyourmoneycrown.com. And that's where W-E-A-R, like putting it on your head. (laughs) My Instagram handle is at whereyourmoneycrown. And I started recently a free Facebook financial community. And that is where your money crown financial community. It's on Facebook. But if you go to my website you can, uh, or my Instagram bio link, you can find all this information. So I'm here happy to, to help. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, I appreciate you being with us today. It's just been great information. I think it'll help a lot of people. So thanks again for being with us. And I look forward to connecting with you again. Thank you for having me. And thank you for what you do, because you're helping to empower others. Oh, that conversation with Anna was so good because I think so many of us really do have such limiting money beliefs or we are in a state of money avoidance. And I think every one of us can benefit from the tip she shared about how we become financially resilient or even how we diversify ourselves into multiple revenue streams. And I just want to share with you that I love that when we change our financial circumstances and when we change our own money stories, that it doesn't just impact us, it impacts our families, it impacts the people around us, and it really does allow for us to create a lasting and meaningful legacy in the world. And I want to leave you with these words by Maya Angelou. You can only become truly accomplished at something you love. Don't make money your goal. Instead, pursue the things you love doing, and then do them so well that people can't take their eyes off of you. Because I think honestly, if we're doing something we love and we're putting all of our heart and passion into it, we will find success both in life and financially. So I would say to you, find the thing that lights you up and go after your dreams. And thanks again for listening in. And if you enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe and leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can check out freebies and resources we have for you at kristenfitch.com. And if you have ideas for the show or guests that you'd like to recommend, I'd love to hear from you. So DM me on Instagram at kristenfitch, or you can email me from the website. Thanks so much. Until next time, have a great week.